Thank you everyone for joining us this morning. Uh, such a pleasure to, to be here and to have the opportunity to, to join in this conversation. I, I note that I am joining you from uh, cold, wet, and rainy California this morning. There's sort of been a, a disturbance in the uh, distribution of, of, of good weather, and I just noticed that Boston is going to be bright and, and beautiful, albeit chilly this morning. So uh, I, I uh, will, will be thinking of you as I'm out, out shivering uh, in the California, California sand. Um, so this morning, we uh, have a, a, just a great opportunity to speak with um, some of the, the most uh, uh, informed uh, in, in expert and, and, and really engaged, practically engaged uh, practitioners in the area of um, uh, FDI regimes and this sort of proliferation of national security review regimes across, um, across kind of the global capital market environment. And uh, I, I'm, I'm very privileged to uh, have the opportunity to moderate a discussion by uh, Hogan, Hogan Lovell's uh, great, great team of, of experts and practitioners and really looking forward to the conversation. I think it's really on point, given kind of all of the intersecting, uh, as we'll discuss, all these intersecting regimes with, with obviously the policy environment the capital environment and this increasing anxiety around national security and the security of our technologies, data, and, and critical infrastructures. So um, I, I will say that that just at the top, uh, first, really appreciate Hogan Lovells and BBA for hosting and putting this together. I do think uh, it's worth noting that every everyone's opinions on here are our own and not of the organizations that we uh, are associated with. Um, I. I you know, in terms of just attribution, I would ask that if anyone is interested in attributing anything that's said here, that you just follow up with us individually. I, I think we're all uh, very happy to kind of uh, engage on that, but just to make sure that we have context and understand, uh, you know, we have a, a, a mutual understanding of, uh, of, of how, how these things interact with the, the, relevant, the relevant environment and context. So with that, um, could I get the next slide, please? So we'll start with uh, with with brief introductions from each of us, just so you know a bit about who who each of us are. So I I am a senior managing director at Anchor Consulting Group. Uh, have a have a background as a as a U.S. Army Infantry Officer. Continue to serve in the Army Reserve. Have had the great privilege of of uh, being a battalion commander. IG um, uh, currently teach uh, uh, strategy and and um, uh, military history at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. Um, went to went to law school. Ha, ha, was able to to work in uh, a couple of firms in 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 DC. Start my practice there. Uh, after that, was a federal prosecutor, and then went in house um, with Sikorsky and later Lockheed Martin, helping them navigate some of these technology control issues. And about six years ago, uh, founded this practice at, at uh, Anchor Consulting Group, where we work with counsel, with clients, with with uh, investors to think about how to really navigate in a practical way uh, these this intersection of national security, uh, data, technology, capital, and business. Um, and so, yeah, really, really privileged to to be a part of this conversation this morning. Brian, you want to say hello? Yeah, thanks, Randy. Um, and good morning, everyone. Um, it's great to be a part of this panel. And uh, and again, thanks to BBA for, for inviting us. Um, I'm Brian Curran. I'm a partner in Hogan Lovell's International Trade and Investment Practice uh, in our Washington, D.C. office. 
Um, there I focus on um, CFIUS, mainly on uh, foreign investment, national security reviews of foreign investments in the U.S., um, and, and beginning to focus on what is a coming regime likely in the United States, which is an outbound investment regime. I'm looking at the national security threats from U.S. investments going outbound into adversaries of tech sector, which we'll uh, touch on a bit later in, our, um, in the webinar. Um, prior to coming to Hogan Levels, I spent about um, 10 years in the intelligence community, so I've sort of spent most of my career dealing with these uh, national security issues. Uh, Ali? Thank you, Brian, and thank you all for joining today's session. My name is Aline Doucin. I am also an international trade and investment partner. I am based in London, but you are qualified uh, in France as well. So I advise clients on all range of international trade issues and national security reviews. Uh, and I interact with both HM government in the UK and the French government on, on, on those uh, filings. So, um, uh, delighted to, to be with you today and looking forward to an interesting session. Yeah, and I'm going last here. Hi, everyone. My name is Falk Schoening. I'm a partner at Home Levels in Brussels. Um, I also have a regulatory practice very much focused on transactions. Um, I do FDI screenings and coordinate uh, those globally as well as merger control filings. So I do see a lot of these different regulatory hurdles for international transactions and um, really try to navigate for clients um, from a global perspective, which is also what I'll cover a bit later here on this program. Thank you. Slide, please. So here's a brief overview of, of what we're going to get to today. How we've kind of structured the conversation is first each of the uh, the Hogan level practitioners are going to kind of talk about the regulatory environment and key developments kind of from where they sit. So first, Brian will talk to CFIUS, uh, Aline will talk to NSI and the UK context, and then Falk will, will give an overview of, of the German and European context and the broader global developments in these areas. And then we'll transition to more of a, a moderated discussion where we've got some, some uh, questions that, that we've put together and, and, and have, have had an opportunity to kind of prepare our thoughts on them. So we'll have sort of a roundtable discussion of those items. But I would note that if anyone from the, from the panel, I'm sorry, from the, the audience would like to send us questions during that, please do. We, we welcome them very much. We'll try to either answer them in stride or I'll also kind of keep an eye and, and might kind of field them into a place if I know where they kind of fit later in the conversation. But really welcome questions from the audience throughout. Of course, we'll have a few moments at the end reserved, but, but welcome it as it comes in. So with that, I'll uh, hand the baton to Brian to tell us what's going on in the United States. Slide, please. Great. Thanks, Randy. Uh, next slide, please. So as, as Randy mentioned, I'm going to just give a very high-level overview of, of CFIUS, of the regime, um, for those of you not familiar with it, um, and then talk about a few you know, recent developments um, within CFIUS. So again, uh, as a reminder, CFIUS is a U.S. government interagency committee uh, that conducts national security reviews uh, of foreign investments in U.S. businesses and, in some cases, investments in U.S. real estate. So CFIUS's jurisdiction, in other words, what does it have, what does CFIUS have the power to review in terms of these types of transactions? So first, it has the power to review 
any transaction which a foreign person could gain control of a U.S. business. So that means control of any business as a technical matter. So if a Canadian company is going to acquire a U.S. Uh, toy company, technically that is covered in terms of uh, CFIUS's jurisdiction. It would be permitted to review that kind of a transaction. Second, CFIUS has jurisdiction over certain non-controlling investments in U.S. businesses, um, but only if the investor gets certain investor rights and only if it's in um, certain kinds of businesses, um, what we call TID U.S. businesses, ones involved in critical technologies, uh, critical infrastructure, or sensitive personal data of U.S. cities. So those are the two main bases for jurisdiction and the ones that um, bring the most cases um, before CFIUS. Um, you can also have instances in which an investor's rights change, particularly, let's say, in one of those TID U.S. businesses. That could be a trigger. Um, and then CFIUS also has a set of effectively real estate regulations that are focused on purchases or leases um, or concessions um, to foreign people um, of U.S. real estate. Um, so the real estate regulations are really focused on what CFIUS thinks of, the U.S. government thinks of as the proximity concern, namely as a foreign person acquiring a piece of land, for example, that's right next to a U.S. military training facility. Um, lastly, it's important to keep in mind that CFIUS's jurisdiction and how it, how it um, views control in particular um, and how it views a U.S. business is quite broad. So you can have a variety of um, structures that might still fall within CFIUS's jurisdiction. I list a few of them here. Um, just to give one example, if you have a licensing agreement um, and with a foreign party, say you've got uh, in the biotech space, you've got a licensing agreement with a Chinese company. If you're simply licensing technology, that's it. That's all there is. That would not be a transaction typically that would be subject to CFIUS's jurisdiction, might be subject to U.S. export control regulations, though. But if that licensing agreement also has certain other bells and whistles, some employees are going over, some other hardware is going over, customer lists. Um, if the collection of assets could potentially be deemed a U.S. business, you could still have a transaction that's subject to CFIUS's jurisdiction. Uh, next slide, please. So I'm going to talk about CFIUS's two mandatory filings now. So at first, we talked about what is the broad scope of the kinds of transactions that CFIUS is permitted to review. And then underneath that broader umbrella, uh, we're going to look at two mandatory filing programs. What are the circumstances in which you're legally obligated to file with CFIUS? So the first one, the one that is most common, um, to be uh, triggered and the one that we end up evaluating with clients um, most commonly is the Critical Technologies Mandatory Filing Program. Essentially, it has three prongs. Is the foreign investor, first, is the foreign investor getting a controlling interest or certain foreign investor rights, for example, a board observer right? Uh, secondly, um, is the U.S. business developing what are called critical technologies? Um, that is uh, critical technologies largely comes down to what is the export classification of the particular technologies and also is the company developing, testing, producing, et cetera, any select agents or toxins. So export classifications and select agents and toxins. Um, and then finally, the third prong is uh, 
is the critical tech, is a license required, an export license from the U.S. government required for the hypothetical export, not the actual export, but the hypothetical export of those critical technologies to the principal place of business of the foreign investor or anyone that holds a voting interest of 25% or more in that investor. So if all three prongs are satisfied, you're required to file with cities. Next slide. Please. The second uh, mandatory filing program is the foreign government-backed mandatory filing program. It also has three prongs. Um, essentially, the foreign investor has to acquire, be acquiring a 25% voting interest in the U.S. business. So um, this is a fairly high threshold. So in your typical you know, venture capital deal, the investor wouldn't even be crossing that threshold. So we often don't have to examine in detail this program. But in some cases, if that first one is triggered, first uh, prong is triggered, we look at the next two prongs. Um, the next two are, is a foreign government uh, holding a voting interest of 49% or more in that foreign investor? And then lastly, is that U.S. business a one of these TID U.S. businesses um, that I mentioned before? Um, in terms of the application of this rule to investment funds, um, it's important to note that the voting interest is, is deemed to be on the general partner side, generally, as opposed to the limited partner side. So what you're asking in the foreign government prong is, does a foreign government hold that 49% voting interest on the uh, GP side of the structure? Uh, next slide, please. And, and finally, just wanted to, to touch on some um, recent CFIUS trends. Um, one over the last few years uh, that is noteworthy is CFIUS's pursuit of what we call non-notified transactions. So CFIUS approaching companies that have not filed with CFIUS, posing questions, and ultimately, if the answers to those questions lead CFIUS to believe that it has jurisdiction over the transaction, CFIUS will then uh, typically request the filing and then do its conduct its normal review. Um, so. The point is that if you don't file with CFIUS, there's still the prospect if CFIUS had jurisdiction over the transaction that CFIUS could ultimately review that transaction. Um, another recent trend is um, we're starting to see, and we think we will continue to see, increased enforcement um, by CFIUS. And by that, we mean um, increased scrutiny of companies, um, in particular companies compliance with mitigation agreements. These are agreements that CFIUS signs with the parties as a condition of its clearance. So it imposes restrictions on parties. And CFIUS is, is looking more and more closely at a company's compliance with those uh, agreements. CFIUS also released some enforcement guidelines for the first time last year. Um, so I think that portends um, a, a, a higher likelihood of CFIUS feeling more, 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 more comfortable that the public is aware of what the rules are um, and that it uh, might be a bit stricter in terms of um, uh, compliance, ensuring compliance with the, with the uh, regulations. Um, and then finally, I would just note, as no surprise to anyone, CFIUS continues to scrutinize, in particular, um, Chinese and Russian investments, um, particularly if they're in one of these TID U.S. businesses. And so with that, we'll move over to the U.K. and Aline will take it from here. Thank you, Brian. We can start with the next slide, please, David. Thank you. 
So in the UK, uh, the National Security and Investment Act 2021, um, uh, which was adopted at the end of 2021 and entered into force early 22, uh, established a new standalone statutory regime for UK government scrutiny of and potentially intervention in uh, acquisition and investment for the purpose of protecting national security. What is interesting, obviously, is the UK, it's the first time that the UK adopts a standalone UK national security investment regime. And uh, uh, interestingly as well, uh, this regime is not explicitly about foreign investment. In other words, the, NSI, the NSNI regime is agnostic as to nationality of both investors and acquirers. And a UK investor could potentially fall within the scope of notification if those uh, other criteria are met, which is quite different from, from other FDI uh, review uh, regime. The NSNI uh, gives the UK government the power to scrutinize and potentially veto uh, acquisition of UK targets or targets with UK activities that could harm the UK national security interest. There are three big changes that the NSNI brought in the UK. But the first one is the expansion of both the sectors and the types of transaction that are covered by uh, national security reviews. Um, we now have sort of 17 type of sectors uh, that are def defined in, in sort of the UK, UK regs and could potentially, if other criteria are met, uh, uh, trigger a mandatory notification. Uh, and a much broader range of deals that fall within the potential scope of, of a notification, including minority investments, acquisition of voting rights, and also, quite interestingly, acquisition of assets, including land and, and IP. There is an additional feature under this UK regime with the Secretary of State or uh, UK government uh, having the possibility to call in a transaction for a review for up to five years. I should caveat that this only applies for the voluntary notification system. Obviously, if a transaction falls within the mandatory regime, uh, it is legally required to file with, with UK government. But if, if the notification is under that voluntary regime and no notification is filed, government can basically call a specific transaction for up to five, year, five years post a com completion of, of the deal. Uh, lastly, but importantly, failure to comply may result in heavy sanctions, which include both fines and potential criminal liabilities, as well as obviously the risk of transactions uh, subject to mandatory notification uh, being void if those uh, have not been notified to uh, governments. Next slide, please. So in terms of those two, enfin, two systems under that, that uh, UK FDI regime, I mentioned that we have both, the UK government operates both a mandatory notification and a voluntary notification. So mandatory notification requirements uh, uh, um, um, is triggered uh, when uh, um, transactions uh, um, when transactions involve 17 sensitive sectors of, of the UK economy. I won't go through the list, you have them on the slides. Uh, very interesting to note that obviously we are moving away from the traditional re realm of defense and dual use and really including those new set of, of high technology that we are seeing government now are considering as, as part of their national security sort of remit, including advanced materials, AI, obviously civil nuclear, uh, uh, communication, data infrastructure, 
cryptographic authentication, those type of like new tech, uh, uh, high tech sectors that obviously the government wants to know uh, who is actually acquiring those type of, of activities or potentially assets. For the voluntary notification regime, i.e. those transactions which fall outside of the 17 uh, sector, but may give rise to national security issues. Uh, there are some examples of deals being subject to voluntary notification outside of those sectors. For instance, when the, investment, the investor uh, acquires less than 25% of shareholding, uh, um, but when mandatory sectors is involved, or we are outside the scope of the mandatory sectors, but over potential national security risk could, could arise for government. And as I said, uh, uh, the Secretary of State UK government can call in a transaction and um, uh, uh, if there is a suspicion that uh, national security risk is, is sort of potentially engaged. What, what is interesting, as I'm shown in, um, um, you know, sort of uh, as similar in other set of, of FDI regime, there is no set definition of what is national security of, or, or what constitutes a national security concern. Um, the, the, this is an intentional exclusion, right, from from uh, the UK regulations, because it allows obviously a uh, 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 scope for, for government to interpret the concepts uh, as widely as it would want to be, uh, depending on sort of either the the nationality of the investor or the sector uh, engaged. It makes it as well much more difficult for companies to assess whether they would want to make a voluntary disclosure if uh, if 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 this is this could be beneficial next slide please <laughs> in terms of the trigger events uh, um the 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 three criteria are set out on on the slide but in essence trigger events occurs when uh, um, uh, the deal sort of crosses three thresholds the first one is acquisition of more than 25% or more than 50% or 75% of more of voting rights of share or shares in the qualifying entity, or acquisition of voting rights enabling or preventing the passage of a class of resolution governing the affairs of a qualifying entity, or uh, lastly, but quite importantly as well, uh, uh, the acquisition enables the investor to materially influence the policy of the entity, which is a bit more of a sort of uh, loose definition as well, that can sometimes create some um, um, difficulty in interpreting whether one would form within or outside the scope of, of the regime. Worth noting that under the UK rules, there is no materiality threshold. And what I mean by materiality here is that the size of the deal or the scale of the party's activities do not matter. Even a small transaction, if those criteria are met, uh, can fall within the scope of, of notification. And the regime, as I said earlier, applies both to share deal and asset deals. So asset deals should not be excluded when looking at uh, a UK FDI uh, review in the context of, of due, due, due diligence, for instance. Uh, uh, lastly, but quite importantly, two uh, practical impacts that we see differ from other set of regime. Uh, impact on private equity uh, investment because transfer of interest between funds could potentially fall within the scope of the NSIA. And we have seen quite a lot of, of, of clients being impacted last year and earlier this year on, 
on uh, in this industry sector on on sort of those by those rules and uh, importantly as well inter intra group organization is also within within scope right so if the reorganization of a company involves the acquisition of more than 25% of share in uh, a company within group and that company for instance operates within one of those 17 sectors that i highlighted earlier uh, it will be required to submit uh, a mandatory notification through UK government. Next slide, please. Aline, we did get a yep. question that might might be good to answer right here. Um, and the question is, I've heard the ins that inserting a wholly owned subsidiary into a corporate structure can, in and of itself, trigger a mandatory filing in some cases. And I assume this is under the NSI regime that, that the questioner is referring. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It would, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Yes, I agree. Um, uh, I don't know if that's the case under US or, or other sort of German, so I would defer to, to Falk and, and Brian on that. But in the UK, yeah, as I said, intra group organization or even the creation of a wholly owned subsidiary could potentially trigger, trigger the, the notification requirement. Yeah, and I can just jump in there uh, to the extent um, the question was also thinking of the U.S. It, there is a possibility now uh, of that as well um, that you can have a circumstance. It's sort of a it's sort of a um, an intersection of some guidance that CFIUS put out about these kinds of um, uh, you know reorganizations, corporate reorganizations and the later introduction of mandatory filing. So you can have a situation, unfortunately, where just that reorg could, in certain circumstances, trigger mandatory filing. Thank you. Aline, back to you. Thank you. Uh, just very, before I go into sort of the, the final orders in 2022, take away from this first year of existing of existence of the, the this new UKFDI regime, just very, very quickly on the process, because that's usually an important sort of question that we get from, from parties in deals, right? How long does it take to file uh, and, and how to, to factor that timeline into sort of the deal timeline? Uh, we are looking at sort of similar type of range of timelines that we have, for instance, in, all, in EU member states, uh, submission of notification up to five working days for government to accept the form or reject it or return it for lack of information. And then you have basically two phases. First phase is the review review period, sorry, 30 working days to review the acquisition. Um, uh, either the acquisition is cleared uh, or called in for further assessment. Uh, and in, if that is so, then we have a phase two, which is the assessment period. 30 again working days, three zero, but can be extended to 45 working days. Um, uh, so that that is usually sort of the the ballpark figure that that we have in mind. Um, there is also the possibility for further extension if beyond that sort of you know 45 working days, if government um, still wants more time to assess, uh, but it will need the party involved to also agree to that extension. So it can also stretch into a much longer time timeline if if government wants to do so, and obviously the party needs to agree, but it's difficult <laughs> to reject uh, uh, the, the request if, if such request comes in directly from government. On sort of the final orders in 2022, because as I said, uh, the NSNI regime, the UKFDI regime came into force in 20, early 2022. So we are still, you know, one year post anniversary, right, of that, of that entry into force. Although I should caveat that under the, the 
the previous UK major control rules government could also intervene for national security concern, but it was not a standalone FDI regime. But interestingly, this year we have seen 14 final orders in the UK, five deals that have been prohibited, i.e. vetoed by government. And, and quite interestingly, of course, out of those five, uh, four involved Chinese backers or owners, uh, one involved a Russian oligarch uh, shareholders, uh, um, who were made in sort of that uh, NSIA retrospective review of deals that completed before the regime came into force. And four of those orders involved uh, either a computer chip or the semiconductor industry. So clearly those industry sectors that we are seeing sort of governments around the world uh, being very vigilant on in terms of who is acquiring those sort of activities. And, and lastly, in terms of conditional decision, because this is also a feature of the UK FDI regime, uh, we are seeing, we have seen nine um, uh, decisions uh, being clear subject to conditional com commitments being sort of agreed upon and, and, and complied with. Uh, four involved uh, Chinese stakeholders, and, and in those nine uh, decisions, we saw the sectors involved uh, being a bit sort of more, um, I would say, wider in terms of code, in terms of scope, uh, energy, satellite and space, communication, uh, quantum, and um, 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 military and dual use defense. So you know th that's that's where we stand from from a UK UK NSIS standpoint at at time of speaking. And I think we are moving to Falk um, now. Oh, yeah, sorry, one, one last slide. What is interesting, and I'll stop there, is uh, one of those, uh, the, one, one of the deal that was vetoed by, by government, and I can touch on, on that later on if, if this is of interest in the Q&A session, is now sort of being challenged by one of the parties, uh, i.e. Um, uh, there is the possibility to obviously ask for a judicial review of uh, the decision that government made under the NSIA regime. Uh, and and at um, this year, we will see the first uh, uh, judicial review of an NSIA decision in uh, this Nexperia deal that involved uh, a UK target operating in the semiconductor industry being acquired by a Dutch entity, but ultimately backed by uh, Chinese investors. So this is going through the uh, high court review um, uh, process in the UK, and it will be the first time that we are seeing sort of the judicial um, um, uh, power reviewing what, uh, what has been done at political level by UK government under NSNI. So interesting space to watch. Okay, thanks, Aline. Um, hi, Ron, again. So uh, we thought that, you know, in the next session uh, section, we... Uh, take a somewhat broader perspective because we wanted to avoid that I just simply replicate what Brian and Aline said for other jurisdictions like like Germany or others, because indeed there are a lot of commonalities in how these FDR reviews go. And therefore, um, next slide, please. If we just take a look at a global map here, we've kind of picked a few, which um, you know is not suggesting that there aren't any other um, relevant FDI regimes, but in my experience, looking at quite a large number of deals per year and identifying where FDI reviews are triggered, um, these are jurisdictions that come up most frequently. Uh, 
as you see on the on the left side, we've already covered um, two of the main ones, namely the U.S. CFIUS regime and and the U.K. And it's really true that in almost all of the deals that I'm looking at, um, these are questions we we need to think about: is a filing required there, and and is that a critical substantive review to be expected? Um, my focus will be quite a bit on Europe today, on on the EU. Um, but also uh, just wanted to mention uh, three other uh, jurisdictions which often trigger questions. And I think one is an obvious question, which is China. Interestingly, from the FDI perspective, of course, a lot of the reviews are triggered by Chinese investors. The other way around, foreign investment control in China does come up uh, less frequently than, um, for instance, merger control, which is a big question, and China's always on the radar. The Chinese um, FDI regime it does not have such a broad application and is mainly triggered if you really directly acquire a Chinese um, entity, whereas if you have an international deal and there is only an indirect effect because somewhere at holding company level something changes, uh, China's very often not, um, not uh, covered. In contrast to that, the Australian FERB regime is one of the most active ones in the world, very similar to the UK and also to the US. Um, and there may also be a reason behind that, right? A lot of this has political implications. So Australia is very often coming up. And likewise, Canada, at least as a post-closing filing, I see very uh, regularly. And, and Canada is just reviewing its um, Investment Canada Act. So there may also be changes to be expected. Last comment on this slide, as I have seen that question on intra-group, you know, uh, restructurings or inserting a new entity, uh, which is wholly owned by the ultimate parent entity in the um, in the chain. There are some other jurisdictions um, which handle it, like the UK. Uh, one of them is Austria, which is why um, I have uh, added this here to uh, the list of jurisdictions in the EU that are relevant often overlooked and um, indeed also questionable why uh, this should pose a security issue, but it's important to keep that in mind. Next slide, please. Um, what we uh, thought might be helpful is to structure kind of the activities that uh, typically have different risk ex exposures. Uh, I did not dare calling anything a, a low risk, as you see. Um, we've rather gone for normal risk, um, but there are indeed some activities which I would consider not to raise any particular issues. In particular, and that is a big sector in the economy, of course, is, is real estate. Um, so real estate transactions normally don't raise a lot of issues. That said, I couldn't call it low risk because uh, you heard Brian say, if there is a site, for instance, in, in the vicinity of a military uh, site in, in the US, then also real estate acquisition of such land could be uh, relevant. Same is true in other places like Australia. The uh, most relevant category in practice, what I see for M&A deals is in the middle, and that's what we call the, the sensitive deals. Um, it is tricky because unlike the highly sensitive category on the right, um, it is less obvious to really identify whether your target company falls into any of this um, groups here. Critical infrastructure is what FDI laws really started um, with. So these are um, utilities companies mainly and, and grids and so on. Um, nowadays, a lot of the action is in the area of critical technology. So you don't need to be a big electricity provider. If you're a supplier to them with any particular critical item that's relevant for the operation of that infrastructure, 
um, you could be covered with your target company. And there is a long list, which you know is not exhaustive, um, but there is a commonality, as I said, between many of the jurisdictions that, in particular, AI, um, robotics, semiconductors, uh, anything relating to cybersecurity, network security is of very high interest. The entire aerospace and defense sector is of interest. Um, energy, in particular, now with the war in Ukraine, um, even previously less problematic issues like um, uh, new renewable energies come into uh, the focus because of a higher importance for European uh, jurisdictions. On the right-hand side, you won't find it surprising, I think, that you see um, security and defense companies being pretty high up on, on the list. Um, for healthcare and COVID-related activities, I think we shall see if this remains like this. In the last three years, um, these um, companies in the space have been added, but we already see that there is some thinking about reforms. Um, Germany is just in the middle of thinking about whether they can actually uh, get rid of all these, you know, mask uh, producing companies and and um, other companies active in the space of fighting um, uh, the the COVID uh, pandemic, because it it seems less relevant nowadays. Next slide, please. How do um, FDI authorities generally um, look at such a deal? And um, again, we'll uh, discuss this in, in the second part of the program, but I think you can try to find some general themes in how they look at it. And I often um, categorize this by looking at three items. One is, of course, who is the buyer? Is this uh, someone from a jurisdiction that is perceived to be problematic um, uh, for many jurisdictions that in, in Europe, that would be China. Uh, Russia would clearly be also on that list, but we honestly just don't see any M&A activity coming from there. Um, but in addition to those, also the general trade relationships will play a role. And it's interesting if you think about from the EU's perspective that more than 50% of the filings done in Europe are from US or UK buyers. And while we are political allies and there is not a problem for the majority of these deals, there are some areas where trade tensions arise. And I just name, for instance, battery technology or semiconductors and where are these investments going? These are certainly areas where I've seen more scrutiny, uh, even for buyers from uh, those jurisdictions. Vice versa, if we look at the target company, um, we've already discussed the sectors, so you've you have those in the, in the bottom here. But more generally, on the target side, it is always worth looking at what does the target uh, do in terms of its concrete business. Do they supply to government-owned customers, to to ministries, to the armed forces, to any law enforcement? Is there any public funding in those companies that, if they would be bought out by an investor? Um, the government might think, hey, why have we put so much money in this startup and now it's going elsewhere? And also, how is the competitive relationship? That's an overlap with competition law. Um, are there alternatives if this target company is sold to a foreign jurisdiction? Depending on how many of these risk factors you have, you either find yourself in the space of an unconditional clearance, or if you have at least one or two of those, the government might ask you for uh, commitments in order to address some of the concerns they have. Or even, you know, if it's just um, a cocktail of too many of these issues, you'll find uh, yourself in, in real trouble and, and the deal might be prohibited. 
this all has a direct consequence on timing. Um, the fewer of the problematic items you have, the faster you'll get your clearance. Next slide, please. Um, if I just put myself in the shoes of someone in, in the legal department, I think you can separate the questions a bit between uh, which are the questions that you'll have to address from your business colleagues, from your management, um, how, uh, which you'll find on the left side, which goes to, can we do this deal at all? And um, it's very prudent to include the FDI experts very early on when you consider a deal, because otherwise um, you might have signed up to something which will be very, very difficult if not uh, impossible to, to get through. And also how long um, will it take? Is this something, you know, it directly feeds into the long stop day that you negotiate, but also are you, if you're in a, in a bidding contest, are you an attractive buyer for the seller? Um, do you have to anticipate that remedies will need to be given? From the legal side, um, there are of course more strategic questions about how you do this, how you get to a clearance. So that's about the strategy. Plus also some compliance aspects, because um, similar to merger control, in many jurisdictions, you're not allowed to close before you have the approvals. And otherwise, you risk hefty fines, if not criminal um, prosecution. Doing these filings is burdensome, and um, you need a good game plan how to get all the information that the agencies will want from you. Um, and if you find yourself in a situation that it looks like very difficult to get a deal done, of course, a question arises, do you want to really push this forward and take it to court? Which I can just preview is something that we see not very often in the European Union uh, member states. It does happen, but um, very often the deal is just that if it faces such, an, um, such a situation. Next slide, please. Um, very quickly, and I think this is also something we might need to uh, cover in, in the discussion with, with Randy. Um, here you'll have a, a few trends, um, and I'll just pick a few here in the interest of time. You could say the theme is more, more, more. There are just more jurisdictions, including in the European Union, very traditional investment spots like the Netherlands or Ireland, which uh, introduce these regimes, even traditionally very business-friendly jurisdictions like Switzerland are now in the process of, of implementing such rules. So watch out for you know just more um, of these filings to potentially be required. And then you know one of the trends that I just see is uh, very often this is not just about the activities of the target company, but but it is about politics and you can basically use these um, regimes to enforce trade policy. So if there are trade issues between uh, certain countries, you will find them to influence the FDI reviews. My third comment on, on this slide, because we've already covered some of the less traditional investment types like internal restructurings um, or minority shareholdings, but on the right side, Remember that this is all a big concert of regulators, that um, this happens in parallel to merger control filings. In the EU, we also have a new called foreign subsidies regulation, which will require um, notifications as of October this year. So you may find yourself in a deal which requires three filings in Europe for one and the same transaction. And again, uh, it goes without saying that you need a lot of strategy. How does that look like? Next slide, please. Um, what, what do we typically recommend is to really kind of 
pick the jurisdictions on a risk-based assessment, whereas the target active, is is this likely to be a place where you need to do some filings? Um, if it's a target group, which are the activities that really raise the concerns, it's not always that everything's problematic. And then you need to have a kind of standard description that you give regulators around the world about why you're doing the, the deal, who is the buyer, um, what are the, the issues, or particularly what are the, the non-issues here, why, why is this a non-problematic deal, and be really transparent with the government about it. You should assume that they will find out what the activities are. There's very little that you can hide. We're talking about national security here, so governments do have their means of getting that type of information. And as I said, in particular for the legal community here, beware, beware of the compliance aspects that you don't find yourself in a gun jumping situation. I think uh, with that next slide, um, I'm done with my part. Randy, back to you. Thank you, Falk. That was great. And thank you all three for, for that great overview of kind of the landscape. I think kind of picking up right where Falk left off on sort of strategy about how to you know navigate these various regimes we got a question from the audience earlier that i think kind of fits in here which doesn't involve different national regimes or or transnational but rather regimes within the united states and so the question is and, and i'll direct it to brian although often obviously welcome aline and fox responses I've heard Team Telecom and CFIUS often work very closely and information share and do filings. Oh, and so information sharing and filing should be consistent. In other words, maybe you didn't need to make a CFIUS filing, but information on the Team Telecom filing makes it look like you should have. Should you file a voluntary CFIUS filing just as an act of good faith to say, we don't think you have jurisdiction here, CFIUS, but we don't intend, and so we don't intend to make an official filing. Um, are there any other Team Telecom CFIUS considerations in terms of kind of managing that tactical interaction between these intersecting, in this case, both U.S. regimes? Yeah, thanks, Randy. I'll give the lawyer's answer up front and then unpack it, which is uh, it depends um, in terms of whether you should make that voluntary filing with CFIUS. But just to step back. Um, Team Telecom is a process, is a national security review conducted by three U.S. government agencies that are also members of CFIUS. Um, and it's conducted in the context of an authorization that has to be granted by the Federal Communications Commission <clears throat> and the FCC. So um, the, there are circumstances in which that review will have to be conducted. The FCC, the Team Telecom review will have to be conducted, but where there's an argument that the transaction at issue, maybe it's just the sale um, of, an, of a particular asset and you don't have the control of the US business being transferred. So you could have some circumstances in which CFIUS arguably doesn't have any jurisdiction and only Team Telecom has jurisdiction. So I think there are circumstances like that where if it's an allied country um, foreigner that's involved and you have a very strong argument that CFIUS doesn't have jurisdiction, where the parties might make the decision not to file with CFIUS because they feel like, look, the government is getting a bite at this apple. They get to conduct a national security review on this in any event. We don't think it's subject to CFIUS's jurisdiction, so we won't file it. In contrast, I think if in most cases, parties 
um, because of the overlap that the, the, that the person who posed the question outlined, because of the overlap in the national security reviews, I think most parties, if they have a transaction that is subject to seditious jurisdiction, and they've got one that's going to undergo a team telecom review, they would file um, with both regimes. And in that scenario, Brian, would would like a, a, a declaration kind of be an appropriate kind of vehicle to say like, hey, we don't think you have jurisdiction here, but we've got to put in this team telecon notice. So we're giving you this declaration because we don't think it's a big deal, but we want to kind of be on the record. Right. Yeah. For, for our clients, if, if they're either unsure about the jurisdictional argument or they're very, very cautious, um, that would be an approach to short to submit that short form declaration. And then you either get a clearance from CFIUS, obviously, in the best case, or if CFIUS doesn't have jurisdiction, you get a letter from them that says we don't have jurisdiction. And Falk and Aline, kind of pivoting to you, I'm thinking of sort of a similar transnational scenario where maybe you've got a mandatory filing under the NSI, but you don't think this is a U.S. business, but, oh, you know, CFIUS tends to kind of, you know, be interested in things, so should we tell them about it? And, oh, by the way, it maybe it's a it's a voluntary notification in France or in Italy, but but do, do you go ahead and kind of file that voluntary notification because you know you're going to have to tell the U.K. regulators about it? I mean, if I just start from my perspective, I think one of the factors, Rennie, that plays a role here is, um, do you have a filing anyway that will take some time? Because that will, for the parties, be a relevant factor to say, look, in weighing the potential risk of missing a filing and relying on a non-jurisdiction argument with, I do have to wait anyway for six to eight weeks until the NSI regime comes back to me, um, I very often see that uh, parties would then actually do that filing and probably uh, try to explain to regulators why they should just hurry up and, and get things done. Um, the other obvious factor is on which side you are. I mean, if you're on the, the buy side, you're probably more risk averse and you want to avoid um, that uh, you get caught for not notifying an acquisition. That said, Technically speaking, very often the filing obligations are on both parties. Mm -hmm. And unlike in merger control, where my experience is that sellers are more likely to accept a position, you know, we missed that filing, it's the buyer's risk, and let's just get to closing and, and get our, our money out of this deal. Uh, if there is a potential FDI filing at stake, sellers are very often likewise risk averse and would just go and do a, um, a voluntary filing. Yeah, and... Uh I'm sorry, Aline, did you want to, or I, I was going to follow up with Falk if, if if you had a... No, I would just add from a UK perspective, I mean, agree with with all of the things that, that both Brian and, and Falk said, but from a pure UK perspective, that five year of government having the ability to call in that transaction is obviously adding to that anxiety and stress. And, and I think to Falk's point, the parties are quite conservative about making sure that they have legal certainty in, in what they do. So obviously that's sort of filing... Uh, decision uh, uh, is is made both in the context of who you know sort of uh, where they are on the deal of a filing requirement, but also legal certainty in the UK in terms of making sure that the deal is not going to be called in a few years' time. Yeah, thank you. So I I would I, I was just going to follow up on Fox kind of observation that there's a little bit of uh, imbalance in the equities of seller and buyer as to sort of how sort of voluntary or forward-leaning you want to be on, on doing these various filings. 
how do you navigate that as counsel with where you have kind of maybe a little bit different equities and and kind of getting concurrence on the parties on well if, if we're going to do this filing we kind of need to have everybody on board with the approach yeah i mean brian you want to go first on that or no go ahead Paul. um so i mean from from my perspective as i said very often um this is an area where the party's interests are more aligned because they do accept that a it's a responsibility from a legal perspective of both parties um Aline pointed out to the potential of governments calling in a deal for quite a number of years. And that is something that both buyers and sellers find a quite intrusive scenario. And then uh, I think an additional point, just to keep that in mind, um, if you think about that risk of uh, having an ex post review after closing for, say, five years or so, that's a time period where in particular with technology companies, that business may have well been sold again already to another buyer. So all these questions will come up in another due diligence. And the potential new acquirer three years down the road will ask the seller, who will themselves have been an acquirer three years ago, why didn't you file this? Um, can we actually really be sure that you are you have title in these shares? Because this is a potential risk for us in, in the second uh, acquisition. So I think it is, um, you know, there may be nuances, whether you're buy side or, or, or sell side, but uh, I find it actually something that, as Aline said, both uh, sides tend to be more risk averse than with other regulatory filings and, and rather go for it and, and do it. And last comment on that, you know, it is very often um, just an, an hassle and additional time but it's not necessarily a deal killer. Um, so in the majority of transactions, you just have to go through that confirmation, get it from a couple of regulators, which adds about two months of time. That's annoying. I, I see that. But it's not that there is very often a substantive risk for um, at least a lot of these transactions. Thank you. And Oh, go ahead, Brian. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I think in the U.S., it's sometimes also dependent in terms of the, the party's views and whether they align. It depends on whether we're talking about a, a venture capital deal where it's a fairly low, a small interest that the investor is taking um, in a U.S. business, I would say in, in many of those contexts, um, it, the companies um, are more inclined to be aligned about not making a mandatory, sorry, not making a filing if a mandatory filing isn't triggered. They're more comfortable with very small investments that might be subject to business jurisdiction, but that aren't uh, triggering a mandatory filing. Um, in the context of outright acquisitions or controlling acquisitions, I would say it, it is, as Falk said, they're, they're more likely to be aligned in terms of what their interests are. Although I do see, to a certain degree, um, even in those, sometimes you do have a seller who takes this perspective that, um, you know, basically the, the CFIUS, the, the, the CFIUS, you know, um, solution to a transaction that's closed that raises grave national security issues is not technically to unwind it. It's typically just to force the buyer out. So for the seller, the seller's perspective is my risk generally ends once we close. So sometimes sellers are more inclined to be, let's just do a sign and close, get this deal done. And the problem, the CPS problem, if there is one post-closing is the buyers. Yeah. And, and is there, are, have you seen sort of risk transfer or or kind of 
<laughs> burden shifting provisions kind of showing up in transactions to address that sort of buy and drop buy or, or sell and walk away kind of risk yeah occasionally there are those working that in i think what what i see more often is the um in the case of a seller who really wants to get to closing and and a buyer who really wants to file with Cepheus, I see more likely, you know, compromise of, of like, oh, well, let's do buyer saying to the seller, okay, we want to close quickly. Let's do a declaration. Let's do the short form filing. And that's a compromise. That's becoming more and more a, um, a path for the parties. Just to add that I've seen deals with Chinese acquirers where indeed the sellers insisted on some form of a side letter or backstop agreement, however you want to call it, which made it clear that if the transaction is unwound, they can keep the purchase price. Um, so that is something if you have a really, let's say, high risk potential buyer that parties would insist on. The other risk shifting provisions that come up quite frequently nowadays um, relate to what type of remedies or commitments would the buyer need to offer and agree to. Um, I guess that's something that many people are familiar with from the merger control perspective. From the FDI side, my experience is that those tend to be a bit more specific and basically say, hey, you really have to you know, work with the government to resolve the issues, to agree to mitigation agreements uh, unless they result in, and then you know, it may be an, an impact on EBITDA, whatever you want to do it. So I, I do see that frequently for deals um, that are opposed to, to present a real risk. Thank you. So if you would hit the next slide, please. And I, I note that we're we're coming up on three minutes left in our panel. We had some some good good stuff here, but um I, I would like to, if the audience has any particular questions, just please do send them in as we kind of round out the back of the hour. Um I, I could I could go here, but I don't know if 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 any of the panelists had a particular item here that they were particularly eager to get to 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 in the in our final few minutes or else. I'll probably just go with question one. Yeah, you know, maybe I, I thought, Randy, maybe one one thing to touch on, just because it's a, a <laughs> little bit of um, a, a, a little bit of a different direction, but very much related to what we've been talking about, which is the in the U.S. and potentially in other countries, but certainly the U.S. the potential for an outbound investment screening regime, mm -hmm. right? So the, U, the the Biden administration is working on an executive order that would introduce a regime to restrict foreign, sorry, restrict U.S. investments going into uh, the tech sectors of foreign adversaries, China in particular. So think um, AI, semiconductors, quantum computing. Um, so I think that it's something that that businesses, investors need to be look out, look out for. And I think the U.S. is also talking with its allies in Europe in particular, Australia, et cetera, to try to figure out if they can convince those uh, allies to introduce similar regimes, just as they encouraged um, their allies to either introduce or expand their uh, FDI regimes. Yeah, it's it's interesting, Brian. There's such a, a just proliferation, I guess, acceleration of different regimes, uh, outbound investment. Uh, you know, obviously increased technology and export control, but but then also this idea now of sort of technology inbound or adversary tech, you know, social media kind of regimes, right, to address these various kind of flavors of risk that that are causing a lot of anxiety, right? <clears throat> so a very um, dynamic 
dynamic kind of uh, uh, investment space policy environment in the U.S. for sure. Falk, did you have thoughts on that? I I think um, I could just add the comment that I had before. The reason for that is this is a legal instrument, but it is at the same time very much a political instrument. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, we see a lot of um, activity and upsurge in, uh, you know, different jurisdictions implementing these regimes. It is, you know, also a political signal to investors that uh, their investments would potentially be scrutinized and that they they should really think about which are the deals that might still fly through and which are the ones that pose issues. So as much as it's a legal uh, regime that we're talking about here, this is just world politics. And given how Mm -hmm. dynamic that is, it has definitely an uh, indirect impact here on what we're talking about. Yeah, I, I mean, I think fundamentally kind of going like to, to question one, why is there such a recent upsurge? I think what we're seeing is sort of the reassessment, reframing of what is national security. Uh, and that is really, <laughs> we're, we're still at least in the U.S. very insistent, like we're doing national security here, but the scope of that and and what it touches and, and how it affects, you know, you, uh, investor and business is really, I think, being reframed, uh, you, you know, through that political lens you, you, you described, Falk. We can see it in the paper every day. Yeah. But um, so with that, um, I, I see we're at the back of our hour. Um, do, does anyone have any final comments? Or if not, I, I really thank again uh, each of our panelists for for uh, just just such a great conversation. Thank you to Hogan Lovells and the marketing team for putting this together. Thank you for Boston to Boston Bar Association for giving us this this platform and opportunity. And most importantly, thank you to each of our audience members for taking the time to to engage with us today. Look forward to opportunities to, to meet you in the future. So thank you and hope everyone has a great day.